You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning, y'all. Good to see all you this morning. It looks like our worship team is just kind of everybody did fruit basket turnover this morning because uh, our worship leader, Kelsey, was playing drums because a regular drummer is not here. And, uh, you know, little drummer boy usually fills in. I made the comment first service. I said, you know, the last time we had a worship leader that also played drums, he became the senior pastor. <laughs> so he, he's not wanting to open the door for that to happen again gotta, for gotta, a few we're, years. We've got to get rid of this guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let somebody else play the drums. Well, we had a great time this week at uh, Refuge Ranch. We had Refuge Church from San Antonio, which is a church that we actually planted. Taryn Phillips is the pastor there, and they brought their youth group up there for the week. And just these kids had an incredible time. They had a whole 106 acres to themselves. And the slash dining hall slash meeting hall has air conditioning in it now. Guys, when y'all went out there for the ministry, there was no air. A lot has been done. It just, man, I... This week for me, I told the first service, I really began to see the vision of what we had in mind two years ago when we got that place really beginning to come to fruition. And this week, of course, as Derek said, we have children's camp out there. We're taking about 60 children. My grandson, Wyatt, is going, and I'm going to go and and be with him. And first through fifth grade, I think it is first through fifth grade. Second through through fifth. Second through fifth. Okay, that's right. He's going into the second grade. I can't keep up with it. I got five of them. And it's just, I can't wait to see them. We've got two llamas out there now. We've got our sheep. We've got all our deer. We've got turkeys. We've got guineas. We've got an African cow, a bull, who has a, a wingspan of already about six feet. It'll get to about 10 feet when he's full grown. And so uh, he's, he's tame. No, don't, don't worry about that. The kids are just going to have a blast. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel, the third chapter. This morning, as we continue our study through the book of Daniel, we've titled Daniel Unshakable because that's what Daniel proved to be. When it came to his faith, there was simply going to be no compromise. He was going to live it out. Now, remember the situation that Daniel and a few others, are you waving at me? Why? Oh, oh well, I did forget. Okay, all right. She, she wants me to talk about peanut butter. We had a cat. We now have a ranch cat. It's actually a kitten. Uh, June Barker, who's uh, Kelsey's wife, uh, was out there helping lead the worship for this uh, church that was out there. And she drove into Palestine so she could get Wi-Fi to do some work, went to Chick-fil-A, and the cat evidently got up under the undercarriage of her car. So he ma- she made the trip back to Refuge Ranch 12 miles, this kitten. So she must have been just kind of doing this. And we thought, you know, this cat wanted to go to camp. And so we're going to keep her there, and so she's going to become the camp kitty. Thank you very much. Cat lovers wanted to make sure that peanut butter, we named her peanut butter because she kind of looks like peanut butter, uh, wanted to make sure that she got her due honor. Now can I preach? Okay, all right. Thank you very, very much. Remember Daniel's situation. Daniel was in Babylonian captivity. He, in essence, was a Hebrew who had been taken into captivity into Babylon, he was actually a slave to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, because King Nebuchadnezzar had come into the southern kingdom of Judah, where the temple was and where Jerusalem was, and he had carried off many of God's people into Babylonian captivity. The captivity of Babylon against the Hebrews actually came in three phases. It started in 605 BC, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar didn't really destroy the city or the temple but he carried the best and the brightest of the Hebrews that he could find in Jerusalem back into captivity. And that's when Daniel and his three friends that you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried back into Babylon. The second phase of the captivity was about five years later because the king realized that the Jews were not paying the taxes to Babylon the way they should. So he came in and he he beat up some folks and tore down some buildings and he carried more of the Hebrews off into captivity. 
And then about 20 years later, about 580, or 13 years later, 587 B.C., he just got sick and tired of messing with them. So he came into Jerusalem with his armies. He leveled the city. He destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple, and he carried the rest of the Jews off into captivity in Babylon, a heathen, pagan nation that was hostile to the faith of God's people. So now we find Daniel and all those who are in captivity in Babylon, they are seeking to live out their faith in the one true God in an environment that, to say the least, was hostile to their faith and to do it without compromising their faith. And in chapter 1, you remember that Daniel decided that he was going to stand out in the midst of everyone because the king wanted all of these Jews who'd been carried off into captivity, these rest in the brightest, to eat the king's rich foods. Now the problem with that was that most of those foods were against the food laws that God had given to Old Testament Israel, to his people. And so Daniel just said, I'm just not going to do it. He was willing to stand out in the crowd. And God honored that. In chapter 2 last week, we showed where Daniel was willing to step into the truth gap. Because there's something that had happened there that the king wanted truth and he wanted to make sure that what he was getting was the truth from, uh, and he, he, he was suspicious that the normal people that he would go to on consultation on an issue like this were going to give him some kind of wild and crazy story and just make something up. And he really wanted to know the truth. And so Daniel took a risk there, a risk on faith. He said, I'll step into that gap and I'll give the king truth. He didn't really know what the truth was yet. He just was trusting his God to reveal the truth to him and to do it in such a way that the king would know that, yes, Daniel had given him the truth. And so Daniel was willing to step into that void. He was willing to step into that environment of lies and deception that was common practice and say, I'm going to give you the truth of God. This morning, in chapter 3, we're going to leave Daniel behind for a chapter and the focus here is on what I love to call Daniel's three amigos. If this was uh, Spanish, we would call them tres hombres. That's pretty lousy Spanish accent there, isn't it, brother? All right, well, I do my best, okay, uh, with my English and my West Texas accent trying to speak Spanish. Sometimes it doesn't work. But these guys, we know them by the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them. Most people do not know their Hebrew names, although they're in the Bible. But we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were compatriots of Daniel, carried off into captivity with Daniel in 605 B.C. And they were carried out in that first phase. Now, in this third chapter of Daniel, they are faced with the decision if they're going to live out their faith or if they're going to pay the price for it. If they live out their faith, they're going to pay a very high price. We'll talk about what that high price is. If they want to deny their faith, then they won't have to pay that price. Now, how many of us are faced with that in the Christian life every single day of our life? Are you going to live out your faith and pay the price for it that the world is going to extract? Are you willing to compromise your faith in order to keep from having to pay the price? The challenge for them was a challenge at the point of the first of God's commandments to his people, the first of the ten, where he said, you shall have no other gods, no graven images, nor shall you worship any of them. So the king had given the command, and, and Derek is going to talk about that, and they were faced at that decision now, are we going to live out our faith and say, no, we will not worship that idol, or are we going to compromise our faith and worship the king's idol in order to save our necks. And the story tells us that they were willing to live it out. And in this, they give us an example. They, the scripture says in the New Testament that all the things that happened in the Old Covenant were given for us as examples. So in this narrative story here, God has included this in His Word in order for us to learn from it. And what are some things that we're going to be able to learn from this story of the three amigos as they face this challenge and the decision, are we going to live it out or are we going to give it up? And the first thing that their story tells us is that when you live your faith out, there is going to be conflict. 
Chapter 3 begins with a construction project, if you will. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is building a very large golden statue of, what do you think the image is? Any guesses? Yeah, so we think probably himself. Most people assume that. Historically, that would have been a very normal practice. You live a, a physical presence of your form uh, well beyond your death so that people remember you. In fact, uh, someone, uh, Marcus, one of our elders this morning, was showing me after first service a picture in Pyongyang of uh, yeah. the great, the great North Korean leader. And it is a 66-foot tall bronze statue. I mean, the thing is massive. And he's only four feet tall. And he's only four feet tall. So it's like, man, yeah, massive. The reality is, is um, it's a little bit of a trick question. What do you think the image is? Because it doesn't say. Uh, verse one just says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. Now, for those of you who are not using cubits as your standard form of measurement, uh, that is roughly 90 feet by 9 feet. This is one honking feet. big statue. It's a big statue. Now, you may be thinking, if you're one of these aspect ratio people, 90 by 9. Like, that's really, really tall and must be, like, really skinny, right? <laughs> uh, the reason for this actually is because the statue itself was likely not 90 feet. It likely stood on about a 40-foot platform. So it was probably about a 50 to 60 foot statue with a 30, 40 foot platform on it. In fact, archaeologists believe that they have uncovered this platform in Hila, right outside of Baghdad in Iraq, where the ancient Babylonian kingdom once existed. Now, where do you think he got this idea to construct a statue from? Hmm. Any, any guesses on that? So, so uh, apart from the fact that, again, this is a historical practice that kings participate in. Nebuchadnezzar was not the first person to do this. He had, had a dream recently. He had just had a dream last yeah. week. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about a dream. Hey, in by which the way, he while you're there, you know, Baptist churches, they just put the pictures, portraits of their previous pastors down the hallway, yeah. you know? Yeah, we don't, we don't build statues. We don't we build have, statues. We have, we have portraits. If, if we did that here, that would be just There'd one be picture. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, because you don't get your picture in the hallway until, until you're you dead. Yeah, until you die. Well, then you wouldn't even get <laughs> or one. Or until you retire. That's yeah, right. you yeah, yeah, retire, exactly. retire, you can die. Absolutely. <laughs> so after about 80 years, we'll have two pictures <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> exactly. That's the hope. That's the goal. So, yeah, he just had a dream about a statue. Remember, the head was made of gold, and Daniel said, this, this part of the statue is you. Now, this, in my opinion, this whole creating a statue shows just how confused Nebuchadnezzar really is, spiritually speaking. Do you remember Daniel 2.47? This is after Daniel uh, revealed the dream to him and told him the meaning of the dream. This was King Nebuchadnezzar's words in 2.47. It says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this great mystery. It almost seems like Nebuchadnezzar is finally coming around. Yeah, These are not things that you hear non-believers say. Yahweh is God. He's God of gods. <laughs> He's Lord of kings, right? You, you would not expect a non-Christian friend to go, you know what, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus yeah. is king. You, th these are not things you expect. And it takes two verses after this. We get to chapter 3, and he's building a statue. And then we get to, to verse 3. This is 3 through 7. I'm just going to read it to you because this is very telling, I think, of of what this, is, what this whole thing entails. It says, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is anyone who is anyone. All the people with authority. The high muckety-mucks. The high muckety-mucks, yeah. as James says. I've never heard that phrase in my life. <laughs> You're not from West I'm Texas. I'm not from West Texas. And they stood before the image that he had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Yes. Now... Apart from the literal worship and the death by fire, put that aside for a minute, this is very much in a modern context, which you would expect in like a presidential inauguration. Everyone who is anyone will be there. There's live music throughout the whole ordeal. There's a large crowd, news and media coverage. People will be streaming from their Facebook accounts for all of us lowly individuals who can't be there in person. There's VIP seats. 
There's food trucks, hotels and cars have been rented out months in advance. This is a huge ordeal. Amen. This is a major ordeal. And this presents a conflict, potentially, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, doesn't it? Why? Because what Nebuchadnezzar is commanding here is sin. It is sin. Outright express sin. Regardless of what the image is, it is sin to bow down and worship it. We don't even know what the image was. Doesn't matter. Sin to bow down and worship it. It could have been an image of Yahweh. He could have gone, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Let's make a statue for him. Sin. Why? Because the Old Testament second commandment expressly forbids it. Deuteronomy 5, 8, and 9. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. It is a clear violation of the second commandment. Now, for most people in the crowd, you got to get this, there was not really a problem. They all worshiped idols. They're like, what's one more? Fine, bring it out. We'll worship it. It doesn't matter. And that brings us to a really good principle that I want you to think about here for a moment as we're talking through this, that the more you violate your conscience, the weaker your conscience becomes. The more you violate your conscience, the weaker your conscience becomes. It's hard to violate your conscience when you're walking in active obedience because it fights back, doesn't it? It, 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 it does. It'll, it'll, it'll let you know you're doing something wrong. When you sin, it feels gross. It feels shameful. It feels dirty, right? But the more you violate your conscience, the less pushback you get from it. It wears down, in other words. Imagine for a moment a new set of tires on your car. When you first put them on, they do exactly what they're meant to do. There's traction. They stop and start exactly when you want them to. They don't slip. They don't bust. They don't tear. They're, they're protecting you. But the more you drive, the more it wears on that hot pavement over and over and over. And what happens? That tread begins to wear down. It doesn't, it doesn't have as much tact. It doesn't have as much traction. And so your conscience operates a lot like this. Your tires are meant to be worn down. Your conscience is not. It's not meant to be uh, beaten down. It's what the scripture would call hardening your heart or searing your conscience. It's not a good thing. The reality is what the scripture teaches is that sin gets easier the more you do it. So for most people in the crowd, they're presented with this, this big ordeal where they're going to bow down and worship this image. And they're like, let's get this show on the road. I've been working all day. I want to get to the party. It's no big deal. Yeah. Why are we, why are we even talking? But there are some in the crowd who do have a problem. The three amigos, as James said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it takes a while for them to get caught. They're not, they're not immediately, there's thousands of people in the crowd. So when everyone bows down, three little guys in the crowd, you know, the king doesn't see that. He's looking up at the statue in marvel of whatever it is, right? And so he doesn't see it, but it turns out that there are some in the crowd who do, the Chaldeans, and they, in turn, go to the king and they tell him, hey, didn't you say that if you don't bow down? They rat out the Jews. They rat out the Jews. Now, the question becomes... Not the first time that ever happened. No. The question <laughs> becomes, why? Why the Chaldeans, of all people? Why are they the ones? Well, if you remember back in chapter 1, when they're being re-educated and learning Babylonian culture, it's the Chaldeans who are teaching them these things. And they have been instructing them this whole time. And yet what we find is that it's not the Chaldeans, but Daniel and his friends who keep getting all the credit. They keep getting promoted up and up and up and up and up. And the Chaldeans are going, well, what about us? We're the ones who've been doing this. And so they were a little jealous. This was their chance to get rid of them. It was their chance to strike. Verse 9, it says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused wow. the Jews. Verse 13, it says, the king flew into a furious rage. So get the, the flow of events here, okay? They did what was right. They acted out of faith because their consciences were still intact and they were, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They didn't bow down. They stood standing during this whole thing. The Chaldeans take issue with this action of faith and a conflict is created. Now, I want to get very practical for, you, for, for just a moment and speak to you about something that is uh, probably going to ruffle some feathers and uh, uh, certainly something that most people want to avoid talking about, but something that happened this past week that finally kind of pushed me to a point of, I, I think this needs to be addressed. For Christians, I think that over this past year, as I've watched social media, I've had conversations with many of you, I think perhaps the most confusing thing that we have faced is what to do specifically with the organization, not the big picture, but specifically the organization known as Black Lives Matter. 
For Christians, it's confusing because there's a lot of social pressure to vocally support this organization. And if you don't, what, you, you hate black people? Yeah, you get called Their, their lives don't matter? This is the kind of rhetoric that gets, that gets thrown around. But on the other hand, if you do any actual digging, you find that there are really problematic things that have been said or done by the organization. There's some very questionable roots for some of the individuals. There's a, on their website, there is a statement talking about how their goal is to dismantle the traditional family structure. Something people, that is, and most people don't really know that. No, and, and this is, you got to understand, if you're not real well versed in Old Testament especially, the family structure is at the central part of the heart of God. Mm-hmm. This is how spiritual formation is meant to take place. Your kids are not meant to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord by us. Praise God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's for you. We have a hard enough time doing it with our kids. Exactly. It's the family. This has always been God's plan. And so it's confusing because obviously we want to support the fight against racial injustice. Absolutely. James and I have been very vocal about this over the last year. We've had people leave our church because we told white people, you need to listen more than you talk for a little while. And here, not out there, but here, the people who are in here who have experienced this and have empathy for them. So yes, we believe that, that your lives matter a great deal, not only to us, but to God, mm-hmm. because of the image of God. We believe that anytime acts of racism are perpetrated on someone, it is an affront not only to that person, but it is an attack on God himself. Amen. That's what Genesis 9 says. So we're very clear about that. But then you come across this organization, and it says that it's interested in, in racial justice and equality, and, and then it also says some other things that are honestly very troubling, one of which hit very close to home last week for me. For those of you who don't know me well, uh, my wife Jessica, her mother's side of the family are all Cuban, every one of them, which means they speak fast and no one understands them. Um, <laughs> they're amazing. True. They're amazing. True. They're and loud, very loud. I can pack in a lot of verbiage. Oh, man, short first Christmas, time. 21 years old, just married, first Christmas with the Cubans. <laughs> I was like, where do I fit in? I was just... Right. Her mom came to the United States when her mother was eight years old. Uh, her grandfather, Antonio, uh, worked for seven years to get his family the opportunity to leave Cuba. You want to know why? Because life in Cuba is hell. It's legitimately hell. Fidel Castro had just taken over, uh, overthrown the evil regime, and instituted an even more evil regime. He's a monster. He's a dictator. He silences all opposition to anything he does by simply having you murdered or disappeared, erased, arrested, and never seen again. And that regime is still in operation today. Although Fidel is not, he has died. His brother Raul took over. And then recently, another understudy of them is now in office. The same things are happening. But if you've been paying attention at all to some news, they're covering this uprising that is taking place in Cuba right now. It's getting the attention of people worldwide. People are protesting. They're calling the government corrupt. And the result of this is that police are killing people in the streets and in their homes. Mass arrests are taking place of unarmed protesters. I saw a video this past week from Antonio, her grandfather, of a man live streaming from his house, literally taken away by the state police on air, and has never been seen since. This was two weeks ago. This stuff is happening there. It's happening right now, publicly. And because a lot of this was being live-streamed, Cuba has recently cut their internet off. So they can't show the world what's actually going on over there. This is real, evil stuff. I'm not talking about what you're hearing on the news. This is my family talking about this. These people are living it right now. They're actually living through it. Many of them are still in Cuba because they have not been able to come over. So as Christians, this should trouble us. The, the, the maltreatment of human beings created in God's image, black, white, brown, all of them, anyone who speaks out is taken issue with. And so this past week, the great humanitarian organization, Black Lives Matter, made a statement. This is their official statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it. It's online. Uh, I'm going to read enough to at least get to the point. Black Lives Matter condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and urges it to immediately lift the economic embargo. This cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining Cubans' right to choose their own government (laughs) is at the heart of the Cuba's current crisis. Now, first of all, I read this to Amy, my mother-in-law, Friday night, and she immediately burst out laughing and then got super pissed off. Because here's the reality, folks. Cubans don't have a right to choose their government. 
They haven't they for decades. Chosen, it was chosen for them. It was chosen for them. And if you try to choose differently, you get disappeared. You get erased. <laughs> They've never had the choice. This has nothing to do with the U.S. government. It has to do with a corrupt regime that has been in place for 60, 70, 80 years. America has done a great many things wrong. This is not one of them. And Cubans certainly know that. You want to know how I know that? Because some of them, my family, have done everything they can to get away from there and to get here. Mm -hmm. Because they recognize the difference. Now here's why this statement grieves me. And this is why I bring this up in this point. Because apart from the fact that it's a lie, the BLM statement is a lie, it is deception, it is demonic. The reason it grieves my heart is twofold. Number one is that countless young people will actually believe this. Mm -hmm. They will believe it because they've put a lot of trust in this organization to make the world a better place. They have no idea about what is happening in Cuba, nor have they been informed of any of the Cuban history or, or, or governmental issues that have taken place. Uh, I, this was really interesting. I, I mentioned this first service as well. I was in uh, Ashley's, his daughter-in-law salon a couple of weeks ago, and an 18-year-old gal in there, we were talking with her, and I was mentioning that, you know, Jessica's Cuban. You know, the, the whole family is really struggling right now because of everything that's going on. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, you know, Fidel Castro's whole regime. And she goes, who's Fidel Castro? She went through the American high school system and didn't know who Fidel Castro was. Here. Yeah, wow. like at a good school. She's never heard of Fidel Castro. So there's a lot of young people who are going to read this, and they're going to believe it. They're going to read this, and they're going to go, I can't believe we've been doing this to Cuba. How wrong of us. Mm. We, need to, we, need to, we need to step aside and, and let them just choose their own government. <laughs> you, know who, you know who suffers as a result of that? Cubans do. Cubans, yeah. Cubans do. So that's the first reason it grieves my heart. The second reason is because many people in this country who have just warmed up to the whole discussion of racial equality are going to walk away from it. They're going to walk away from it because they just warmed up to it. They began supporting Black Lives Matter, trying to do the right thing, trying to be a part of the solution, not the problem. And they know Cuban history, and they're going to read this statement like thousands already have and go, these guys are nuts. That's right. I don't know what this is, but this is clearly a different agenda than what I thought it was about. And they're going to walk away, and in doing so, not only walk away from Black Lives Matter, but they're going to walk away from the whole discussion of racial equality at large. And then you know who suffers as a result of that? Minorities, Minorities. in America. Yeah. It is a lose-lose on every front. And if you don't believe me, look at the comment section on these statements. You're not going to find a lot of right-wing people talking about it. You're going, to talk, you're going to see progressive people who have marched with Black Lives Matter, who have given money, who are going... You people are not, who is running this account? Wow, I thought a lot better of these people. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go away. And more divide is going to happen. And less people are going to be willing to, to speak out. Here's why I bring this up. Because living out your faith as Christ followers, speaking truth, has real world consequences to it. It's not just something we talk about in church. It's not just a Bible study little lesson that, oh, we're going to feel good about ourselves and go home. Mm. When you speak truth in the world, it actually does something. And when you are silent, it does something as well. There is an organization in the world that millions of people are supporting, Christians included, who are outwardly supporting a murderous regime, actively killing their own people, actively trafficking their own people. And if you speak out against them, it will create conflict in your life. People will sneer at you, they will call you names, they will call you racist, they will write you off. It will create conflict in your life. But you know what's going to happen if you remain silent? Conflict. Mm -hmm. You don't get to choose whether or not there's conflict or not. Conflict with faith. You just get to choose what kind. Yeah, exactly. And, and listen, if you do remain silent, maybe you do step away from personal conflict with the world. But you know who doesn't get to step away from conflict? Cubans and minorities and people who are actually being affected by this stuff. Because you just wanted to take the easy way out and not have the hard discussion. To borrow a phrase that's very popular in this discussion, silence is complicity. You remain silent, you're a part of the problem. And listen to me, hear me, people of God. Do not email me or message me about politics, please. Okay? This is not about politics. This is not about America. As your pastor, I love you. I love you dearly. I want to see you walk in your faith. I want to see you conform to the image of Jesus. I could care less about your opinion about politics. All right? This is not about Republicans or Democrats. This is not about this or that. This is about not bowing down to what everyone else in the crowd seems to be okay with. Yeah. 
Exactly. It's about standing up for truth, even if it means the Chaldeans are going to come at you full force and remaining unshakable in the face of consequences. Some of you are so afraid of conflict that you would rather bow down to men than stand up for truth. And what you don't realize is that by remaining silent, you haven't stopped conflict at all. You've only redistributed it. That's the truth. Silence doesn't stop conflict. It redistributes it. It may be fine for you, but someone else pays the price. Living out your faith is going to create problems for you. I guarantee you it will, but embrace it. Embrace it, because here's why. This is what we find out, that out of that conflict, you're going to find confirmation for your faith. I love the application that Derek just gave because it's, it's real life. It's right in the moment. And what is happening in our culture among Christian people is who, who believe, yes, I believe in this whole idea that we have to fight against racism. Y'all know where he, we stand on this. Two of our elders are, are men of color, and, and, and we have spoken openly, and, but we absolutely reject the organization Black Lives Matter because it is Marxist, it is anti-God, it seeks to destroy the Christian family, and it supports a Marxist regime in Cuba. So when you speak out against them, then it comes back to you, then you must be racist. No, I'm not racist. I will fight that till the day I die. But neither will I bow down to an organization in order to be in the good graces of my culture. Mm. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to look in the eye and say, you are a liar. You are from the devil. And racism is from the devil. And that is not what you're really doing. Listen, there's no organization that's going to solve the problem. There is no organization. It's going to be the changed hearts of people. The world needs a gospel. And that's going to come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen anywhere else. And I love the fact that here we have a real life opportunity for us as Christians to say, you know what? I am against racism and I'm against that organization because it is not of God. And I'm willing to say that and you call me what I will, but I, what you will, but I will not compromise and bow down before you to get your acceptance. And that's what these three did. Out of conflict, out of that conflict over faith, listen to what happens. And we got to go real quickly. Comes a confirmation of faith. Mm. These guys took a risk, and that faith got c confirmed. Now, verses 16 through 18, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had just said, Okay, we're going to all bow down. Everybody's going to bow down when the music plays, and these three didn't. Chaldeans rat them out. King comes to them. He says, Listen, I said I was going to throw everybody in the fiery furnace that didn't bow down. Now, the king did not want to destroy these three, he had brought them from. Uh, Judah to uh, Babylon because they were the best and the brightest and he had plans for them. He was training them to be of, of use to him and he, he never, it never crossed his mind that they would hesitate. They would be a bit small thing, just bow down before the statue, but they refused to do it. And so he's caught between a rock and a hard place. So he says, look, I'm going to give you another chance, okay? Because if I said I was going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you didn't worship and you don't worship, I'm going to have to do it and I don't want to do it. So I'm going to do it again. We're going to start the dance. The band is going to strike up. And you're going to have another chance to bow down. So you can imagine the, the tension. Everybody's waiting to see. What are the three amigos going to do? Not only are the Babylonians waiting to see if these three Hebrews are going to bow down. Guess who else is waiting to see? All of the Jews who had already compromised and bowed down to the statue. Because... It, the text indicates to us that only Daniel and a handful of the faithful Jews have not bowed down. Everybody else went ahead and did it so that they didn't wind up burning in the furnace. So you can bet the other Jews who have already compromised, they really want Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down. Why? So they wouldn't feel like such worms because they had compromised the faith. Now let me tell you something. Nobody, and I've experienced this over the last few years, at being willing to speak out unapologetically against organizations that are not of God and, and all of those kinds of things. Man, I have taken some arrows, not only me, but hundreds and even thousands of other pastors and spiritual leaders have taken arrows where we said, no, I will draw a line there. I will not compromise with that. I am not racist, but I will not support a godless organization. And man, we take all kinds of hits for that. 
It's always going to bring conflict. When you stand for the truth of faith, it's going to bring conflict. So the Christian who's not, listen, listen, the Christian who is not living out their faith hates to see other Christians who are. Oh, yeah. The, the, the ones that put the most pressure, obviously, quite often in this environment, the unbelievers out there couldn't care less what I say because they expect me to say it anyway. I'll tell you who, who gives me the most shots and the people that have gone after me, it has been people that are in church every single Sunday who have bowed down at the altar of godlessness and they want me to do it too so that they feel better about their own compromise. And you know what? I ain't doing it. I'm simply not. I'm just going to get louder. And I'm going to get louder. And I'm going to get louder. And I'm going to fight for the truth. And I'm going to fight for what what is right, and I believe that the Im image of God is in every single created human being, no matter what that is. So racist is uh, of the devil. It is not God. Racism in any form is not of God. And I will say that, and I will say it unapologetically, but I won't bow down at the foot of a godless organization that pretends to have the same conclusion. Because it doesn't. So the question on every mind's mind, how much of what these men have been saying do they really believe? When it costs them, are they going to be willing to pay the price? Will they bow? Verse 16 of chapter 2 is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, we do not need to give you an answer in this matter. <laughs> we don't even need to discuss it. Thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Strike up the band. Get the music going. We're not negotiating our faith with you. So you start your band. We're not going to bow down to this image. Now remember back in chapter 1 when Daniel was commanded to eat the food of the king, Daniel said, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do it. You can give me a new name, and he did. You can teach me your Chaldean history, and I'll learn it. But I'm not going to eat your food. Now... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying the same thing. King, do what you have to do. Play your music to your blue in the face. Throw us in the fire. But we will not bow down before your image. Hmm. And then they follow it up in verse 17. Our God is able to deliver us out of your blazing fire. But even if he does not, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that part. First they said, we're not going to negotiate our faith with you, king. We're not going to compromise with you. And second they're saying, and we're not going to negotiate faith with our God. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. We don't know if he will or whether he won't. But even if he does not, if it cost us our very lives, we will not bow down. We will not deny. Listen, folks, if you have to negotiate... It's, it's kind of like the girl who says, you know, I'm waiting for this other guy to ask me to the prom, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> even if he doesn't, I'll go alone. That sounds like you speak from experience. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go to proms, man. I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Well, now you know why he couldn't get a date. <laughs> All right. He had to import Jessica from Cuba. <laughs> oh, oh, that's man. good stuff. That is good. I'll I'm take that you, one. Folks, you don't get this kind of stuff just in any church. Touche. I mean, this is real life stuff. That is so good. Yeah. So anyway, back to the three amigos before I was so rudely interrupted. <laughs> Quite simply, they say our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we don't have to negotiate with him. And you know, so much about faith today is kind of like a negotiation. Oh, yeah. People say, you know what, God, I'll do this if you'll do that. And then they tell people, like, okay, now if you do this, if you act in faith, then God's going to give you all this good stuff. No, 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 that's not faith. If you negotiate your faith with the world, it ain't faith. If you have to negotiate with God to get the things you want from him for you to obey him, that's not faith. Faith is taking God at his word and obeying him. And if there's a fire that's involved in that, 
then you face the fire. If God delivers you from the fire, then you give him praise and thanksgiving. And the next time you remember that gift that he gave you, but you stand before him and do not bow. You know, Stephen Ambrose wrote a 600-page tome about the D-Day invasion. I read it a number of years ago, June June the 6th, 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy to drive Hitler and his armies all the way back to Germany. It it spelled the end of the Second World War. When D-Day came, there were so many stories of heroes and examples of bravery and heroism and sacrifice. It can almost be uncounted. But the fact is, that's really about all we want to talk about now. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about those experiences of bravery and heroism, and there are so many of them. But in Ambrose's book, he goes and tells the other side of that story. The side that very few of us really ever hear about and we don't really like to acknowledge. And that is that not everybody was a hero. And not everybody was brave. Not everybody did what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. There were paratroopers who were being parachuted in away from the beaches. There were paratroopers who refused to jump out of the plane. And had to be literally pushed out of the plane. There were some of them that couldn't be pushed out of the plane. And they rode the plane back to England because they refused to do their job and jump out. Some, when they hit the ground, just dug in right there. And refused to move toward the objective. Trying to get past the danger. There were some pilots of those planes that had paratroopers that when the flak the anti-aircraft guns began to explode around them. They refused to slow the aircraft down to parachute speed, which is just a notch above stall speed. And they kept to the, to the throttle, to the, to, the, to the top at 200 miles an hour and made paratroopers jump out, and they were immediately ripped limb from limb as they hit into a 200-mile-an-hour wind. Some refused to leave the landing craft when they landed on the beaches. And some got to the beach and dug in and refused to storm that machine gun emplacement that I've had the awe-inspiring privilege of standing next to on Omaha Beach because it's still there. And when you see it, it's amazing that anybody could cross that beach because that 50 cal was just just mowing them down. Some of them, rather than face that and storm that and get rid of it so their buddies could live, they just dug in on the beach and waited until somebody else did the job. See, the point is this. Back in England... In the preparation and the planning, everyone was a hero, right? Everyone was a hero. But it took the actual invasion. It took the actual battle to prove who was and who wasn't, to reveal the difference. Folks, it's exactly the same with our faith. Some this morning would proclaim, I assume all of us would proclaim, I'm a person of faith. I'm a true follower of Jesus Christ. Look, I'm in church. Folks, this is England. Hmm. We're all heroes here. Our faith is strong. For all of us here, this is England. It's before the invasion. That's Normandy. And when we walk out of here, we walked out of the safe, we'll walk out of the safety of England and we'll walk into the fire of the beaches of Normandy, and then we're going to find out who the true people of faith are. And who they're not. When the world calls upon you to compromise in order for you to get along with the world. When your liberal progressive friends say you have to support this or this or this in order to get along with them. Are you willing to say no? I will stand for the truth of God and that is not the truth of God. Or will you bow down? See right now our country needs more than any time in my 40 something years of ministry. God's people to be distinct in how we deal with truth and how we define truth and how we stand for the truth of God, not the truth that has been warped and twisted around concepts that are evil. So here we are. When faith is lived out, the result is conflict. Out of that conflict... Faith is confirmed that it is either faith or it is not faith. And lastly, about five or six minutes, when faith is confirmed, confusion 
is cleared up. Confusion is cleared up. I'm going to just give you three. I was going to read you the passage again, but you just, we just talked about it. They said, even if, you, even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not bowing down. Let me give you three closing thoughts on uh, what we get in this story. Number one, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they understood that God was able, but not obligated. God is able, but not obligated. There's a huge difference between the two. God is able to do anything and everything. He's God. There's no limits for him. If you're in a financial bind, God can provide for you abundantly in a way that would, would bring you out of that problem forever. If you're in a health crisis, if you have an uncurable disease, if you have some uh, malady against you, he can instantly heal you with the word of power. If you are in danger, if you are facing sudden death, he can deliver you supernaturally in a way that nothing else could. He is able to do that and crucially not obligated to crucially not obligated to. Just because he can doesn't mean he will, which brings us to our second point. They understood that God's will might be different from their will. God's will might be different from their will. Very rare does my will align perfectly with God's will. In fact, I would say it probably never has perfectly aligned with God's will. God often acts differently than what I would have him do. And so what that means is that there are times in my life when I desire for him to show up, and I know that he is able to show up, but he doesn't because he's not obligated to, because his will is different from mine. He has a different end game than I do. He sees things differently than I do. And so he chooses sometimes to do things differently than I would have him act. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that our wills are, are different. And so the question then becomes... When that happens, not if, when, because it certainly will, when that happens, will I remain obedient to him? Will I remain obedient to what he has called me to do, even if he doesn't do what I think he should in that moment? And that brings me to my third point. They didn't make their obedience contingent upon God's deliverance. Let's just be real for a moment. When you are praying for God to do something supernatural. You're praying for someone that you love who is sick, who is dying, and you want to see God heal them. I, this has been something that, I have, uh, something that I have done numerous times in my life. I need God to show up in a miraculous way, and I pray. I pray with faith. I, I know you're able, God. I, please, Lord, this is what we're asking. You, you tell us to cast our cares and concerns upon you, Lord. This is my desire. You know, please, and then he doesn't show up, and that person dies. Does that not for you create a lot of inward turmoil and confusion in your life? Or that, or that eye is not healed. The eye is not healed. Does that not make you just a little bit skeptical, a little bit of doubt? Can we be honest about that? Is it not confusing? Where were you? All you had to do was say the word, and it could have been done. Where were you? It makes you question everything. But notice what they say. Even if he doesn't show up, we're not going to bow down. You can do whatever you want to do to us. That, that's not even a part of the discussion. They're not even tied together. They're not even corollaries. We have already decided we're not going to bow down. You see, when your obedience is not contingent upon God's deliverance, it, it frees up the confusion of where you stand on everything. And it frees you up to just obey and walk in obedience and walk in blessing regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances. There are times in your life when you're going to act in faith, you're going to face consequences for those actions, and God is not going to bail you out. And you have to decide, are you going to remain obedient just because he didn't do what you asked him to do? He's not obligated to you. His will is different. And so it's a high probability that that is going to take place. And so you have to decide beforehand, not in the moment. This is another one of those hard heart decisions that we talked about in week one. Yeah. Am I going to obey regardless? Once you do that, there's no more confusion. Mm. I'm going to obey because I'm going to obey, because God is worthy of my obedience. And I'm going not, to trust him to figure it out. Yeah, and if I die in the fiery furnace then I can be with him. To live is to, 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 to live is to, what is it? To, to die, well, I can't even think of it now. <laughs> to live, to is, live Christ. is Christ, to die is gain. Yeah. 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 To, to use the words of Paul. To live is Christ. To die. If you're going to let me live, great. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus and I'm going to worship him and glorify him and everything I do. You want to kill me? Awesome. I'll be in his presence in a blink of an eye. That's a hard dude to beat. Yeah. <laughs> he wins both ways. Tiresome individual. 
This is how we live. This is how we think. This is why Paul says that. It doesn't matter the consequences. I look forward to having two eyes in heaven. Yeah. But for the last 11 years, God has chosen to give me one. Yeah. That's okay. He's not obligated to keep my left eye healthy. Yeah. I am obligated to honor him. Amen. And to serve him and trust him for whatever it is he's doing. I just don't know. And you won't either. And you won't either. And you don't have to. Because it's not a, it's, it's not, they're not contingent upon one another. Will your obedience be contingent upon simply being obedient? Between me and Jim Bauer, we've got three legs and three eyes. <laughs> and that's one heck of a duo. And that is a great, that's a dynamic duo. Yeah, although I bet you could run faster and read faster than them. Just put that out there. Probably. Probably. That's all right. Are you getting this? You live, out, you live out your faith. It has consequences. There's going to be conflict. And again, this is England. That's Normandy. What will you do? Don't talk about living out your faith here. Live it out out there. Amen. That's Normandy. That's right. This is England. We're all heroes here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. What an opportunity to uh, just be challenged again by your word and, and, and by the reality that, God, sometimes things don't go our way, even when we obey you. We don't earn through obedience the easy way out. It's not how it goes. And so help us, God, decide and be convicted to be obedient regardless of anything, to be obedient for your sake, not for ours. We know then, God, that it clears up the confusion. It frees us to be who you created us to be, and it, it exports your kingdom in the way that it should be. Stir us up, God. Stir us up. Remove the fear that we have to have hard conversations, to say hard things, difficult things. Remove the temptation to escape the consequences by remaining silent. Help us be exactly who you created us to be, a light to the world, a city set upon a hill. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Y'all go have a great week.